This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we're featuring. Coming up. Marina Hyde on the government's bright ideas to solving the cost of living crisis. Niall Doherty speaks with Kasabian songwriter and singer after its former frontman was sacked. Anna Beryl asks whether timing your meals right can benefit your health. And finally, Sam Wolfson wonders, why do people like, say like, so much? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Just a heads up there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, the cost of living is going up and up, and although money-saving expert Martin Lewis is starting to panic about how people struggling can get through this crisis, Tory MPs seem to have an abundance of ideas. As Marina Hyde notes in this piece, one minister doing the media rounds this week helpfully proclaimed, we could all just go and find a better paid job. Right? Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Given the employee calibre and attrition rate of this government, it's always a heart-in-mouth moment when they unleash a previously unheard-of minister on the airwaves. Much like the bit in The Simpsons where Mr Burns releases the winged monkeys from his window with a hopeful, Fly, my pretties, fly! When thuds and blood-curdling shrieks follow, he turns to his retainer, Smithers, with the curt instruction, Continue the research. Perhaps Number 10's comms geniuses felt this way when they debuted the hitherto deservedly obscure safeguarding minister, Rachel McLean, onto Monday's breakfast shows to discuss the cost-of-living crisis. Who knows why the random nitwit generator machine had made it Rachel's turn? Maybe Helen Waitley was refusing to come out of her trailer. In many ways, I refuse to believe Rachel even is the safeguarding minister. A huge part of me assumes she is just a character hastily assembled from discarded away-day ideas and then given a pretend job title that it would feel rude to argue with. Just say she's the safeguarding minister. 
sounds like a thing. As for Rachel's thoughts on how increasingly anxious citizens can respond to multiple financial pressures, let's see them fly. We need to have a plan to grow the economy, she hazarded. (laughs) No shit. And to make sure that people are able to protect themselves better, whether that is by taking on more hours or moving to a better paid job. Continue the research. In the meantime, if you're keeping a tally of government suggestions for how to deal with acute real-world financial distress, please add, had you thought of being paid more, to the pile. Said pile also features similar advice from Therese Coffey to work more hours, while George Eustace recently let shoppers in on the little secret of supermarket value ranges. Generally speaking, he generalised unspeakably, what people find is by going for some of the value brands rather than own branded products, they can actually contain and manage their household budget. Amazing, isn't it, that George still has all this good stuff in the tank when money-saving expert Martin Lewis recently admitted, I am out of tools to help people now. I've been through the financial crash, I've been through Covid, this is the worst, where we are right now. That is simply not tenable in our society. There is absolutely panic and it has not started yet. As Martin thought of pointing out ways people could retrain in investment banking... In the meantime, with the Bank of England governor appearing before the Treasury Select Committee on Monday to forecast apocalyptic food prices, do you get the sense that the government has anything in the same postcode as a plan to make things even mildly better? Hand on heart, no. Quite the opposite. In fact, it has two plans to make them worse. The first is a possible trade war with the EU, which Smelled It Dealt It treaty critic David Frost seems to be suggesting is one of the good kinds of wars. And the second is Boris Johnson's triumphant announcement, via the pages of the Daily Mail as opposed to their line managers, that he is going to lay off 91,000 civil servants. Let's park the fact that the Prime Minister surely arrived at this number by the ancient clue-free technique for making cuts, thinking of the total number, then dividing it by five. Instead, we'll focus on the main event, which is suggesting that the best idea for how to enter a recession is to make cuts to frontline service provision. Whatever it says on the back of Johnson's napkin, there simply isn't another way to make 91,000 cuts. Of course, number 10 doesn't tell you about the frontline service provision, preferring instead to intimate that this will merely be a just desserts response to civil servants working from home. This is the chief bugbear of that incorrigible desk sniffer Jacob Rees-Mogg, a man whose own work desk does not even feature a computer, but who has recently been slithering round Whitehall like the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and leaving sub-yodel, sorry I missed you notes for civil servants. I'm told that Rupert Murdoch is obsessed with people returning to the office wherever they may work, so perhaps that puts lead in the Rees-Mogg pencil. Even so, for a government that has achieved absolutely nothing in office, bar a Brexit deal it is currently threatening to torch, it does feel genuinely extraordinary to watch the Johnson administration work so committedly against this organic form of levelling up. 
as has become increasingly clear ever since the phrase was first farted out, they haven't the first clue how to level up anything. Yet, in one swift and elegant way, remote working is the market actually beginning to deliver their policy for them, by allowing people to draw metropolis salaries but physically locate themselves in less affluent regions for at least some of the working week. What's not to embrace? Over to Boris Johnson, a man who famously works from home. Indeed, his officials have spent much of the year explaining that is why certain rules don't apply to Downing Street. My experience of working from home, Johnson explained at the weekend, is you spend an awful lot of time making another cup of coffee and then, you know, getting up, walking very slowly to the fridge, hacking off a small piece of cheese, then walking very slowly back to your laptop and then forgetting what it was you're doing. Oh, you forgot what you were doing? Let us help you out. You were supposed to be being the effing Prime Minister. Oh well, perhaps another time. Sorry to have missed you. That was At Ease, Martin Lewis. A queue of Tory MPs is here to solve the cost of living crisis. By Marina Hyde. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. Next, Kasabian is back just without the band's former frontman, Tom Meehan, who was sacked in 2020 for assaulting his then-fiancé. Here, writer Niall Doherty visits the band's songwriter, Serge Pizzorno, to find out more about that heartbreaking decision and why he finally decided to step up as singer. Read by Mark Abeluwe. In the summer of 2020, a few weeks after firing their frontman, Tom Meehan, for assaulting his then-fiancé, Vicky Ager, the two remaining founder members of Kasabian met up and asked themselves, What now? Radio stations had stopped playing their music, all the success of the past 17 years, during which the Leicester Group became one of Britain's biggest bands, with five number one albums, plus a debut that went three times platinum, felt suddenly tainted. Winding things up seemed to be the next logical step given they were now without their bolshie ringleader singer, whose ability to whip up a crowd had become crucial to their ascent. But Serge Pizzorno, Kasabian songwriter and leader, didn't see it that way. We can't end a story like this, he thought. It's a cold spring morning, and on a sleepy lane on the outskirts of Leicester, the gates to Pizzorno's house creak open. He emerges from his front door, tall, wiry and smiling much more gently mannered than all his belligerent anthems he's become famous for might suggest. Pizzorno, now 41, leads me down the side of his house, along the garden, past his kids' climbing frames, and through a gap in a hedge where a jet-black two-storey building awaits. A Japanese-style lightbox sign sticking out from the side tells us where we are. The surgery. Pizzorno's home studio. I love Japan so much, he enthuses, pointing up at the sign. There's a mega bit in Tokyo called Omotisando. I wanted a sign that would look like it's from a street there. Those little details are so important to me. This is where Kasabian recorded the bulk of their excellent new album, The Alchemist's Euphoria, their first record since sacking Mian, with Pizzorno stepping up to become the quartet's vocalist and frontman. 
It plays up the adventurousness that has defined the band's music away from their big indie rock anthems, where Pizzorno's love of hip-hop, electro, psychedelic off-roading and Italian film soundtracks comes to the fore. Some songs burn with the urgency of a band desperate to map out a new future, but there's also a feeling of loss. Even the heaviest moments contain diversions into minor chord majesty, as on the sweeping mini-prog epic T-U-V-E, and the spiked grooves of recent single Scripture. Pizzono's vocals sometimes resemble Mian's aggro delivery when the music's in full pelt, but in the more mellow moments, his soft croon is starkly different. Pizzono never wanted to be a frontman. Initially, the band wondered if they should get a new singer. The more Pizzono thought about it, though, the more he became convinced he was the man for the job. I know these songs, he says, taking a seat by the mixing desk. They're ingrained in my soul. I know exactly where I was when I wrote every word. It would be difficult for me to convey that to someone new. After Mian's exit, getting back into the studio was therapy for Pizzono. We were all set up to play stadiums and make another record, he says. I had these amazing pieces of music, so I came in here and started to write for fun. He says he is still coming to terms with the events surrounding the departure of Mian. Domestic abuse charities criticised the 200-hour order as insufficient, given it was revealed in court that Mian had repeatedly struck Ager and held her by the throat and dragged her by the ankles. The couple have since married. The summer when Tom left was absolutely heartbreaking, Pizzorno says. It felt like leaving home and coming back and seeing it burnt down, walking around the ashes seeing old pictures and artefacts and picking things up and sifting through the destruction. It was an intense time. He pauses, then continues. Over the years we've dealt with a lot. When it all came out, you'd see things being said and written that were hard to take because you've lived it. You know the true story. A highlight of the new record is a seething prodigy-style banger called Rocket Fuel, which addresses the flack Bizzorno feels has come his way from fans aggrieved the group didn't give me in a second chance. It always amazes me how strong people's opinions are when they don't know anything about the actual truth, he says. There's way more to it. Who, in their right mind, would sack a frontman if there wasn't cause? He goes on. Over the years... There have been some tough moments. I don't want to go into them because I feel like that's the band's business. After apologising, Mian announced he was suffering from alcohol addiction and had been diagnosed with ADHD. With Tom, all we ever tried was love and support. There were times when we needed professional help. That was all taken care of, but when we were finally made aware of the incident, he crossed the line at that point. The most hurtful thing you could level at him or the band, Bozzano says, is that they weren't there for me and, or didn't try everything they could over the years. He chews over a question about whether he misses the singer, eventually saying, I miss who Tom used to be. A few days later, speaking by the phone, bass player Chris Edwards adds, I think part of Tom wanted to go solo, but he didn't have the heart to tell us. A couple of weeks after the incident, Tom said he was going to go solo and the band had split up. 
As soon as we heard this, me and Serge sat down and said, do you want to keep doing this? It's all we know. So if we can do it, and the fans still want it, let's go for it. Mian has since launched his solo career with a UK tour and is currently preparing for his debut record. All we ever wanted was for him to be happy, says Fazorno, who hasn't spoken to Mian since their post-trial meeting. So, if he's happy doing that, then great. Edwards hasn't talked to him for over a year either, but says he still cares for him. The last time we spoke, I said, Mate, if you need help, if you fall off the wagon... If you have problems with anything at home, you can always come by and stay at mine. That's how we left it. With a hug and we said we loved each other. There was no malice in the separation. It's heartbreaking, but it's happened. There were some people in the band's wider circle who questioned their decision to carry on. They didn't think I could do it, says Bazorno. And there may be the people I don't want to speak to so much anymore. He felt vindicated when rehearsals began for the group's first post-Mian tour towards the end of 2021. A feeling heightened by finally going out on stage. The weight of standing there, front and centre. I was in this incredible state. Way back at the beginning of lockdown, before all of this, Pizzorno took the time to look back over everything the band had achieved. That's the first time I ever stopped in my life, he says. I got a chance to sit in a deck chair and go, what the fuck was that about? He thought about their wild early days and the time they stayed up all night worrying about their first Glastonbury gig because they didn't think anyone would turn up. It was full. 20,000 people, he laughs. From that moment on, they believed they could be huge. We were the perfect cocktail, the mid-90s had a massive impact on our attitude towards success and being in a band. I started with dance music, but once Britpop happened, we were told, get as big as you can. I had that drive. That impulse remains, he says, although the ambitions are different. Size is no longer everything. It's about wanting to make the music as perfect as it can be. Thinking about how I can make a show something where people go, did you see that? He studies his favourite artists, Tyler the Creator, Iggy Pop, Bjork, PJ Harvey, plus Liam's Howler and Gallagher, and wants to incorporate a bit of each into who he is as a frontman. One thing he loved about Kasabian's return to live performance last year was how young the crowds were. It needs that mosh in the centre, that bounce from the youth, he says. In the surrounding area were people who have been there from the start, but the core were just kids. Seeing them lose their minds, that's when you know it's worth carrying on. A whole new generation are getting into it. That was Kasabian on sacking their frontman. It was like seeing your house burn down. By Niall Doherty. Read by Mark Abaluwe. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Grace Dent and I am back 
for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and self-esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. (laughs) Northern women eating carbohydrates. Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality Jamie Lang best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace Lent is supported by Ocado. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, eat more fruit Snack less? Or just time your meals better? We all wonder what eating more healthily really means. Writer Anna Birrell breaks it down for us and explores the health benefits of keeping an eye on the clock. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. When did you last eat? Did you breakfast like a king, as the saying goes? Or skip it to hit a 14-hour fast? While good and bad foods have been ingrained in us from an early age, there's more to eating than simply what's on our plates. Timing is a crucial factor, says Jeanette Hyde, nutritional therapist and author of The 10-Hour Diet. Looking at the optimum times to eat can help your weight, but also brings down inflammation and helps you sleep better. Intermittent fasting has rocketed in popularity over the years, From the 5-2 diet, where you eat normally for five days and heavily restrict your calorie intake on the others, to aligning mealtimes with our circadian rhythms, the body's internal clock, and time-restricted eating. It's the latter Hyde has adopted, consuming food within a 10-hour time window and fasting for 14 hours overnight. Some people will start at 8am and finish at 6pm, Others start at 10am and finish at 8pm to improve her metabolism and gut health. Nutritionist Rhiannon Lambert, meanwhile, believes it's more what you eat than when. Your nutrition is so much more than a time schedule or a number of meals, she says. The foods you choose to consume on a day-to-day basis will have a knock-on impact on your overall health. 
A balanced plate, Lambert adds, should include a handful of carbs, rice, pasta, spelt, barley, for example, an outstretched handful of protein, chicken, salmon, pulses, tofu, two handfuls of veg, variety is good, and a thumb-sized portion of fat, olive oil for cooking. But how many meals you choose to eat and their size comes down to personal preference, lifestyle and health goals. If, for example, someone had a body fat loss goal and was more sedentary in the evening, Lambert suggests that a smaller portion at dinner than lunch would make sense. What we do know, according to Dr Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, is that the current NHS guidelines that you should be eating small meals often throughout the day is completely disproven now. In general, snacking is bad because it produces extra sugar and fat peaks and therefore leads to sugar dips and more hunger, so you'll eat more at the next meal. That said... A Zoe Health study, which asked a million people about their snacking habits, found snacking affected those on a good quality diet less than those on a poor quality diet. Snacking can, however, be useful for some, says nutritionist Jenna Hope. If we go for long periods without eating, we are much more likely to overeat, and that's because blood sugar levels fall, so we feel like we're far hungrier than we are. This can lead to eating more rapidly too, so being mindful and observing the senses can be an important tool. No one is going to make any money from telling people to slow down and chew their food properly, says Hyde. But if you sit at a table without your phone or the TV on, be present and chew each mouthful, enjoy it, think of the flavours and texture you will be in tune with your body and start to recognise when you're full. It takes about 20 minutes for those hunger hormones to switch on, Hyde adds, so take your time and you won't have room for that Kit Kat afterwards. Then, consider the gap between your last bite and going to sleep. You should stop eating around two hours before bed, says Hope. If you don't, the digestive tract is working hard to metabolise your food and absorb nutrients rather than secreting and absorbing the sleep hormone, melatonin. Varying lifestyles can, of course, make this difficult. Something Michelin-starred chef Tom Kerridge, who lost 12 stone in five years, can relate to. The kitchen is always the worst place because you're surrounded by food and you're cooking at times when it's been deemed lunch or dinner, says Kerridge, who has restaurants in London, Manchester and Marlow. That's part of the reason I got into a bad space in the first place, because you're eating filling, naughty things late at night. If you're getting home late and therefore don't have that two-hour window before bed, Hope suggests a smaller, lighter dinner, such as an omelette or bean-based soup. Carriage adds, For me, it's about trying to get a grip on the food I eat, rather than the time I eat it. You've got to look at it as a lifestyle choice that's sustainable, rather than it being an instant return. That was How Timing Your Meals Right Can Benefit Your Health by Anna Burrell. Read by Rachel Louise Miller. 
Finally, saying the word like has long been seen by many as a sign of laziness and stupidity, but its use is actually richly nuanced, goes back to Shakespearean times, and is an indicator of, like, intelligence. Is it time to finally like the word like? Sam Wolfson investigates how we came to hate the word, and why we shouldn't judge too soon. Read by Mark Ebelouwe. I'm listening to BBC Radio 1, where they're interviewing the 26-year-old actor and singer Dove Cameron about her globally successful hit, Boyfriend. The DJ, Melvin O'Doom, asks her, do you think that your acting career has helped you with, kind of, like your music career? For me, they're like the same energy, replies Cameron, which is like when people are like, you have to choose... I'm like, they feel the same. It's the most predictable celebrity interview exchange ever uttered. Remarkable, only for one word that repeats and repeats. It's a really funny one, says Fiona Hanlon, who has worked at the station for more than 10 years, including producing Nick Grimshaw's Breakfast Show and Maya Jammer's Weekend Show. If a guest says like too much, we'd get texts from listeners. If a DJ says it too much, Sometimes a boss might pop in and mention it. It's just seen as a bit lazy, a bit dumb. I was always very aware of it. Why do people have such a problem with like? Is it because it simply won't go away? In 1992, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a robust defense of the word and the way it carries a rich emotional nuance, responding to what had already been a decade of criticism. This did nothing to settle the debate. Linguists agree that the usage of the word has increased every year since then, to the point where, in one five-minute exchange on Love Island in 2017, the word was uttered 76 times, once every four seconds. By the time I was at secondary school in the early 2000s, like was just a natural part of speech. Transcribing the interviews I did for this piece, I say it constantly. When I do... I find it a friendly crutch, signaling to the person I'm talking to that we're having a spontaneous and unrehearsed conversation, that I'm listening and thinking. But despite its long history and widespread use, for many, it remains enraging. Politicians, educators and business leaders have complained it makes speakers sound stupid. When Michael Gove was Education Secretary in 2014, he used an update to the national curriculum to require students to speak in standard English, even in informal settings in all British schools. This reinforced the idea that there was only one right way to speak English. By 2019, one primary school head in Bradford, Christabel Shepherd, said she banned the word because when children are giving you an answer and they say, is it like when you're like, they haven't actually made a sentence at all. They use the word all the time and we're trying to get rid of it. Nick Gibb, then school's minister, praised the decision and said others should follow suit. Scores of recruitment specialists and public speaking coaches have publicly bemoaned the word's rise and say those who use it prevent themselves from getting opportunities. One law firm in America sent a memo to just its female employees and told them, learn hard words and stop saying, like. Peter Mertens, an associate at PR firm Burson, Cohen & Wolf, has said, 
There is nothing that will lead you to being dismissed more quickly than a few too many likes during a meeting or on a call. There's even an app, Like So, recommended by businesses which listens to your speech and promises it can stop you using the word. In the UK, this chorus is made louder by a group of mostly old and white celebrities and spectator columnists who crusade against its use. In 2010, Emma Thompson complained to the Radio Times that she went to give a talk at my old school and the girls were all doing their likes and in-its, which drives me insane. I told them, just don't do it, because it makes you sound stupid. Giles Brandreth, writing in the oldie, Where Else, complained that like was the lazy linguistic filler of our times, and very, very irritating. Why is it so detested? Well, humans have an innate tendency to judge. People who are very liberal in other aspects of things, who would never judge someone based on race or sexual orientation or whatever, still have this thing about language, says Carmen Fort, professor of linguistics at Pizza College. They want to freeze it and they want to judge it. I absolutely guarantee you that in Shakespeare's time, there was some schoolmaster walking around saying, don't say soothe, Portia, it sounds so tacky. Say, forsooth. There's certainly an element of sexism here, and the detractors of like say it makes you sound girlish and stupid, arguing that this is a newish tick said mostly by women, and that it's a meaningless filler word that doesn't add anything to a sentence's meaning, but they are in fact wrong on every count. The first point is that like isn't just a filler word, it's actually an incredibly versatile and dynamic word. The linguist Alexandra Darcy, who wrote the book on the word, outlined its many uses. There are its traditional uses, as a verb, I like the smell of what's cooking, and a preposition, this tastes like it was made in a restaurant. Then there are ones that are the subject of scorn. The first of these is the quotative like. He cooked a spag bowl for me last night, and I was like, that's delicious. It allows you to tell a story without promising complete accuracy. Indeed, one of the most enjoyable things about this kind of like is that you can tell an anecdote that makes you sound wittier and more erudite than you actually are because you're not promising exactly what was said, but the feeling of what was said. The other hated likes are as a discourse marker. What did I do last night? Like, had dinner, hung out. An adverb to mean approximately. It was super quick to cook, like 30 minutes. And what's known as a discourse particle, which goes in the middle of a phrase rather than at the end of it. This dinner is like the best I've eaten. But there are more uses than that. For example, the Geordie tradition of finishing sentences with a like. He cooked dinner for me like. And increasingly, like is also used as a noun because of Facebook and Instagram. I give it a like. Many of these uses often overlap in a way that is incredibly rich. If you say, he was like seething about the pasta sauce, 
You are quoting someone's reaction, but at the same time highlighting you are approximating their response while pausing to highlight that you are thinking meaningfully about this reaction in real time. This one word is doing all those jobs, all the while creating a sense of familiarity between you and the person you're talking to. The word's incredible flexibility is nothing new either. Most people think the word like dates back to the 80s, as typified by the Frank Zappa song Valley Girl, in which his daughter, Moon Zappa, impersonates a California bimbo ad-libbing that I like going into, like, clothing stores and stuff. I like buy the neatest miniskirts and stuff. It's, like, so bitchin'. But it goes further back. In Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, written at the start of the 17th century, Valentine says to Cesario, If the Duke continue these favours toward you, Cesario, you are like to be much advanced. The linguist Anatoly Lieberman says that this version of like was being used as a shorthand for likely and may be the beginnings of our contemporary usage. Consider the following, he writes, All these three be like went together, 1741 OED. Take away be and you will get a charm in modern sentence. All these three like went together, be like meant in all likelihood. It's easy to imagine how this use of like could transform into like being used more generally as a way to break up speech. Perhaps it was aided by the Irish, the Vipudlian and Geordie use of the word to mean roughly or thereabouts, or by the beat poets of the 1950s who would often start the sentences with like. Interestingly, fewer people now complain that these more masculine uses sound stupid, despite the fact that they could also be described as filler words. It's true that young women in the 1980s probably invented the quotative like, but they are far from the only group to use it now, and research suggests that the discourse particle, like, the one that comes in like the midpoint of a sentence, is used more by men than women. But the biggest lie about like is that it's stupid, that it adds nothing to the meaning of a sentence. People say language is random, but language is almost never random. You can't just stick that like in anywhere, says Fort. So, for example, if I say, oh look at that boy over there, he's wearing a top hat, and he's like 10, that makes perfect sense. But if you say, how old is your brother? And I say he's like 10. That's a little more unusual. Or if I said my like grandma died, that'd be a very strange context to hear it. So there's patterns. There's ways to do it more grammatically. More than being internally logical, it's also a way of signaling. It helps with what we call focus. I'm showing you this is the important part. This is the part that connects. It can be for interpersonal connection. It's checking in that you and I are connecting. It's an incredibly useful part of speech. If it really were meaningless and had no purpose in a sentence, it would be much easier for us to leave it out. 
This is what I think when I listen to Radio 1 or watch vlogs by young women like the TikTok star Emma Chamberlain or Billie Eilish, both of whom are heavy like users. They have this almost instinctual way of using language, not just to convey meaning, but to convey a moment around that meaning. It's almost like magic. Fort adds that although the debate around like can be fun, when it comes to teachers punishing children for saying the word, there are more serious impacts. There's nothing more non-conducive to learning and contrary to the purpose of education than constantly shutting kids down because of how they talk. If you want to teach a kid how to practice having different language styles, that's fine. But to demean and criticise the way someone speaks in any situation is very harmful. So if linguists are largely agreed that like is at least, in some context, no bad thing, why does society still bristle at it? Catherine D. Kinsler, the author of How You Say It, a book about linguistic bias, which she argues is one of the most persistent prejudices in our society, says that taking someone to task for the way they speak is one of the last societally accepted ways to exercise our prejudices. Most people aren't even aware this is something they might do. For example, if you're interviewing candidates for a job, it's easy to think you're not being biased, racist or sexist, that you're just looking for a good communicator. But so many of our perceptions of who is a good communicator can be infused by other forms of biases that we're not aware of. Kinsler says that like is a good example of a word where young women are chastised for talking a certain way, even though that isn't borne out in the linguistic data. Young and female is often the group that is associated with a lot of these vocal features, but actually you find lots of people in the population speak this way. It's a similar thing with uptalk, ending your sentence going up, like it's a question. It's also assumed that it's a valley girl way of speaking, when in fact it occurs with lots of different groups. In 2014, a mother wrote to the advice columnist in this magazine with a dilemma. My adult daughter is clever, pretty and confident. However, she cannot stop saying like about six times in every sentence. I know it's not the end of the world, but it makes her sound stupid and uneducated which she most definitely is not. And when she wants to return to the real world, I worry this will be held against her. I hope that she would take some comfort in knowing that the best linguistic studies today suggest people who say, like, may actually be more intelligent than those that don't. One published in the Journal of Language and Social Psychology, which examined 263 conversational transcripts, found that conscientious people and those who are more thoughtful and aware of themselves and their surroundings are the most likely to use discourse markers such as like. As Fort says, I'm 55, I have a PhD. Many people would consider that to be a sign of intelligence. And I'm a like user. So this judgy thing, it's natural. But it's really not helpful. That was Why Do People Like Say Like So Much by Sam Wolfson. Read by Mark Eberluwe. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. 
If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Mark Abeloue and Rachel Louise Miller and presented by me, Evelyn Miller. This episode was produced by Yolaine Galfin. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.